here's the thing, in past floods, our team has shown it's more important to be in a resilient community defined by social ties than one protected by very strong concrete walls. So here immediately, we think about resilience, we think about mitigation of climate change. Our first impulse often is to build what's most visible, to build things that you can point to as a politician, to, right. to build things that is a political economy for. But it could be, and I think we're trying to make this case now strongly in our research, that what really drives resilience has really nothing to do with the physical structures in which we live, but rather the social infrastructure and the civic infrastructure in which we're engaged. Welcome to Asia and Washington, the podcast examining key questions animating debate in DC on the Indo-Pacific region. I'm Jada Frazier, here with my co-host Audrey Reinecke, recording in Washington, DC at the Edwin O. Reischauer Center for East Asian Studies at Johns Hopkins SICE. You can find a transcript of today's episode on the Reischauer Center website at www.reischauercenter.org slash podcasts. Today we're joined by Dr. Daniel Aldrich, Professor of Political Science, Public Policy and Urban Affairs, and Director of the Security and Resilience Studies Program at Northeastern University. An award-winning author, Dr. Aldrich has published five books, including Building Resilience and Black Wave, as well as more than 70 peer-reviewed articles and op-eds for the New York Times, CNN, and Asahi Shimbun, along with appearing on popular media outlets such as CNBC, MSNBC, NPR, and the Huffington Post. Dr. Aldrich has spent more than five years carrying out fieldwork in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, and his research has been funded by the National Science Foundation, the Fulbright Foundation, and the Abe Foundation. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Aldrich about the important role social ties play in disasters and shocks. Dr. Aldrich, we're really excited to have you on the Asian Washington podcast today. Your seminar at the Reischauer Center generated quite a robust discussion, and we're really looking forward to diving deeper into some of those questions that were raised in today's episode. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. So to start off, I thought it would be helpful to bring our listeners up to speed on some of what you discussed with us in your talk. You had described three types of social capital that shape responses during and following major disasters and shocks. To begin, can you describe for our listeners what those are and how they interact to influence disaster response and resilience? Yeah, I think all of us recognize we're buoyed and generous with our networks of friends. We all have friends nearby, friends on internet, friends from back home, friends from school. But social scientists really try to pin down the different types of connections we have using three main categories. And we call those bonding, bridging, and linking ties. Bonding ties connect people who are quite similar. So if you sound like, look like, listen to the same music as someone, probably that's a bonding tie. So the friends that you grew up with, the family that you spent your childhood with, the people that came from the same schools, probably those are bonding ties. Uh, the fancy word for that is homophilous ties, people who are similar ethnically, religiously, and so forth. The good thing about humanity is we go beyond those bonding ties to make connections to people different than us. We call those bridging ties. And funny enough, those often come through institutions, uh, churches, synagogues, mosques, clubs, schools, even workplaces. And these are chances for us to meet people who have a different way of thinking, speaking, understanding the world. Where bonding and bridging ties are horizontal ties, people with the same levels of power, the third type of connection we call a linking tie. That's a vertical tie between me, a normal person, and someone with power and authority. Right? So maybe the dean there at SAIS, or uh, maybe I know someone in FEMA up in the hierarchy. 
And those three different types of ties are so critical during shocks and disasters. This might be as a minor thing, like a fire in our neighborhood to a major event, like a earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdowns. And what happens is those ties that we have really step in and help us when we're in a crisis. So imagine, for example, if there's a car accident in a neighborhood or there's a fire, neighbors living nearby would immediately go out of the street, I hope, go help the person out of the car, put out the fire. If there's a fire, alert the authorities. So well before the authorities arrive, local members, people, residents nearby, people involved in the accident or the disaster, they're helping each other. Right? And that's the very first type of connection that we see. People on the scene with those connections can save those lives well before the firefighters or police officers, people that we need. But again, they can't be everywhere, right? Other ways that those help us is in the long term, our mental health is really strengthened by having people in our lives who help us feel that we're not going through something bad alone. You know, whether it's an evacuation or even a long haul COVID symptom holder, like some of my students right now who can't come to class, can't necessarily walk. Uh, having those friends who check in on them, who send them gifts, who uh, send them funny uh, memes. Those are just ways of letting people know in the long term that people are thinking about them. And, and it's funny, those kind of ties, those kind of strengthening bonding ties might actually be as important as other types of medical care. There's a lot of studies right now on loneliness, people who lack these ties and how devastating that can be to our health, actually, mental and physical health. And finally, those linking ties, we mentioned the vertical ties. This is so important because oftentimes information and resources come from people in authority, right? So someone who has a map of my entire region can see more than I can about the vulnerable areas and can guide me and my colleagues to safe ground if there's a flood coming, for example. But also, of course, people in power and authority often have access to money, to resources, to rebuilding equipment. You know, many times a whole area is devastated, but certain areas seem to bounce back quicker. And our research shows those are often areas which have stronger vertical ties to people in power and authority. Thanks for that really great explanation of social ties, Dr. Aldrich. And you've conducted in-depth research on the role of social ties in Japan, both in the wake of the 2011 Fukushima reactor incident and then more recently with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So both of these constitute shocks, but they're shocks of different natures. Did you observe that the impact of stronger or weaker horizontal or vertical ties held across both cases? Or did the fundamental differences between these two cases lead to different outcomes? Yeah, this is a great question more broadly, right? Do the same factors work differently under different conditions? And the cool thing about these kind of social ties is in a sense how universal their effect is, right? So whether it was the Fukushima reactor or the COVID ongoing pandemic, in both cases, having stronger bonding, bridging and linking ties was protective. Meaning that if you were someone who had a strong network, friends, family, maybe a faith-based community, people who lived nearby that you spent time with, you know, friends you used to go out to drink with or whatever, those ties, both during a nuclear disaster, but also during a disease pandemic would help keep you safer. That would mean, for example, in the Fukushima case, you might have left earlier because information got to you earlier. If you were immobile, if you were someone who was disabled and couldn't move, maybe someone got you out of your house in the Fukushima case. And with COVID, having those stronger ties meant both information, but also resources. And I've actually seen this in my own community. I live in Brighton, right near Boston. And in our neighborhood, 
individuals with stronger ties, especially the elderly and vulnerable who didn't want to leave, they immediately began getting deliveries of food, masks, medicines, toilet paper, a little note saying, how are you doing? And I see this all the time. Those individuals who have those ties can feel safer, feel protected, and also keep away from the danger. So too in Fukushima, individuals with these stronger ties had better mental health. I think I mentioned this earlier. They're able to feel more secure that they weren't the only ones going through this kind of shock. So one thing that really struck me in your talk is you did a very robust quantitative analysis of various factors that contributed to the recovery from the Fukushima incident. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, your argument wasn't just that social ties mattered, but that in fact, the terrorist paribus, they might in fact be the most important factor in determining resilience. Is that correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Let me step back a few steps and talk about disasters broadly and how we respond. You know, if you think about most disasters that people encounter, and in North America, where I live now, it's things like floods, let's say, heat waves and fires. And oftentimes, the kind of things that we try to predict about future events and then protect against involve building something physical, right? So for example, here in Boston, we're talking about building a seawall, a very large and expensive seawall to protect us. Because if you've ever been in Boston during the high king tides, as we call them, several of our Southern stations area flood actually. So those kind of moments happen enough that the city of Boston wanted to protect against future shocks. Their first response was building this large scale uh, seawall. Now we can talk more about the efficacy. Does it actually work? I'm pretty skeptical, having a lot of data now from Japan and elsewhere, whether those actually protect us against the kind of events like a flood, for example. But more importantly, here's the thing. In past floods, our team has shown it's more important to be in a resilient community defined by social ties than one protected by very strong concrete walls. So here immediately, we think about resilience, we think about mitigation of climate change. Our first impulse often is to build what's most visible to build things that you can point to as a politician, to, right. to build things that is a political economy for, right? If you're a construction firm, of course, you're going to support building more concrete walls if your job is building concrete walls. But it could be, and I think we're trying to make this case now strongly in our research, that what really drives resilience has really nothing to do with the physical structures in which you live, but rather the social infrastructure and the civic infrastructure in which we're engaged. That's a perfect segue, actually, into our next question, which has to do with what are the strategies that you have identified for developing and fostering horizontal ties and what role can or should the government play in those? Yeah, this is my favorite part about my job because, you know, of course, disasters, unfortunately, are all too, all too common. Pretty sad, honestly, that our societies continue to face shocks that were, in a sense, preventable, like the COVID deaths we're seeing right now. So, yes, there are a number of ways societies can build stronger social ties. Again, this web, this fabric of society that helps keep us safe. So the first always goes back to Mr. Fred Rogers. And when I was a kid, every morning I would watch his show and he encouraged us all to be good neighbors. And the simple reality is if you ask most people, whether it's Tokyo or Bangladesh, do you know your neighbors? Can you name them first and last names? The reality is most people can't name those neighbors. And here's why that matters. Those neighbors would be the first on the scene if there's a flood or an earthquake or a fire or a heart attack. You need to be able to trust people that you live near to get their cooperation during that shock. So Mr. Rogers told us to be a good neighbor. Uh, thanks to our lab's work, Australia now has a neighbor day 
because of the number of shocks Australia faces, they know that they can't protect against all of them with physical infrastructure, roads, bridges, walls, but they need to build a society that will work together. So that's the first thing, Mr. Rogers. The next kind of idea we can think about is at the neighborhood level, and we call these the neighbor fest party. And right now, San Francisco will give you $5,000 every year to hold a party in your neighborhood. Not because they like parties, they might, but because they know there's big shocks coming in the future. They know there's an earthquake coming and they can't retrofit every building in the city to be safe through that major shock. But what they can do is make sure each block, each area has people who can work together and be ready to go. So that $5,000, that party, we have to organize that as local residents. Someone's got to bring the guacamole. Someone's got to get the speakers. Someone's got to get the kids events. Just the fact of organizing itself requires building these kinds of ties. Then think more broadly beyond the neighbor and the neighborhood to the city. Most people now, I think something like over two thirds of the population is moving into cities. So that means we need to have cities that encourage the creation of these social ties. And by the way, Jane Jacobs, she was brilliant and she knew this 70 years ago. She fully recognized that cities have to be organic and spontaneous, meaning it cannot be that you tell people, here's where you play Here's where you work, here's where you eat. Sort of the high modernism that we tried in Brasilia and other places in Brazil. Real cities need to have spaces for interaction. We call those spaces social infrastructure, which is a fancy way of saying a space anyone can go to and meet someone they haven't met before or meet a friend of theirs, right? So think about parks, dog walking areas, libraries, outdoor spaces, patios, beer gardens, right? And really beautiful, amazing cities. I'm thinking right now, I just had the, the luxury actually of spending some time in places like Panama City actually last week, uh, before that I was in Rotterdam, uh, before that I was spending some time in Denver. All of those cities feel comfortable because they put a lot of work into places like parks, outdoor spaces, open amphitheaters, dog walking areas. So it's not just a concrete jungle, but it's a place where you bump into someone you've seen once or twice. You can meet a neighbor of yours for lunch. You can take a walk outside and feel safe. You're not going to get mugged or, or hit by a car, right? You can ride your bike without fearing you're going to get in an accident. That's the third thing we're designing right now, social infrastructure. Two more things that we've tried and also have worked. One is simply increasing civic engagement and democracy. We want people to be involved, not just in voting, which is the most obvious of things we should get more involved with, but every meeting on zoning or school board, that's also building horizontal and vertical ties. If the same five people show up to every single school board meeting, that's really not showing a lot of diversity of thought or interest, right? We need more of us to be involved. So our lab has tried to make those meetings more accessible and more interactive. One last approach we've had has used what we call community currency or time banking, right? Again, we want more volunteers. We want more people getting involved in communities. Oftentimes people tell us, well, I would get involved, but I'm so busy with my whatever. So oftentimes a way to get around that is to say, look, if you volunteer for an hour here in Boston, we'll give you 10 Boston dollars or in Ithaca, New York, it'd be 10 Ithaca dollars or in Onagawa, Japan, it'd be a thousand Onagawa yen. And those are currencies that cannot be taken to national chains. They only work in the cities where they're created. And then they're only taken by local mom and pop stores, farmers markets, bodegas, right? It's the small local businesses that we want to support. So I volunteer, I'm getting out of my house, spending more time with the community. The community gets my labor. And then I get paid in a way that also circulates locally. All of these things I've been talking about, community currencies, civic engagement, time banking, all that kind of stuff, 
all of them have been proven in the field to increase trust and interaction. So oftentimes I talk to people and they say, oh, you know, I, I think it's a great idea, but my community is just, we're so not connected. We're so you know, disparate. We're all students, whatever. They have all these reasons. They believe that they're not engaged. And I show them, you know, no, it's not actually true. We can build and recreate and update all of these kind of things. None of them are set in stone. All of them are things that can be increased to their programming. So one thing that occurred to me as I was listening to you is you're talking about social infrastructure, and I'm wondering, how has COVID interacted with these social spaces? Have we seen a resurgence of them, or has it dampened them? This is a fantastic question. In fact, we are doing this right now. Literally, as I speak to you, we've had three different ways of investigating this question. Uh, We've had graduate students from the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs walking the streets of Boston with their phones and their cameras, capturing and ground-truthing things going on in social infrastructure. That's one thing. We've also been using cell phone data to track at the aggregate level how places like the Boston Commons, our biggest park, and other public use areas are being used. And we've been doing interviews with people. And there's good news and bad news. The good news is that for some groups, there has been an increase in places like Boston Commons, other public park use. The bad news though, is it's only some groups. I've heard oftentimes the K-shaped recovery, right? People who are doing well did better. People on the bottom leg of the K, unfortunately doing worse. And this is another example. People who had white collar jobs, better paid jobs, had the free time, had the flexibility to take a two hour walk in the park with their dog or to meet a friend outside for coffee or to do yoga in the park. And people who had to work that two jobs or they're on Amazon delivering packages or, or they're a nurse, they stayed away from those kind of parks, either because they recognized the risks they faced from the jobs they already had, or because they simply didn't have the time, unlike their white collar counterparts. So what we have seen is an increased use of these spaces, but unfortunately not in an equitable kind of way. So kind of switching gears a little bit and moving into how this has specific implications when we're looking at East Asia. Demographic decline is an issue that's facing many countries in East Asia. And I'm interested in how that phenomenon is potentially impacting social resilience in those societies. Yeah, this is another fantastic question, which you know we are studying right now as I talk. It's, it's hard to say what's happening as we lose population. You know, one argument is, and this is pretty common, smaller groups are simply organ- easier to find connections within. So if you've got a class of a thousand students as opposed to a class of five students, of course, in the class of five, everyone's going to know your name and all your business. In the class of a thousand, you might be able to go in the back of the classroom and never be noticed. For that reason, oftentimes we assume smaller groups are better to, and easier to organize. Now, the weird thing, of course, though, is let's talk about Japan specifically. In Japan, something like 90% of cities are shrinking, except for the big cities. We've been tracking Tohoku, which is where the triple disasters struck over a decade ago. Every single city in Tohoku, except for two, has been losing population even before the 311 disasters. The only one I can remember that hasn't been losing is the biggest city in the area, which is Sendai. Sendai, which already had a million people before the shock and now is having more and more people. Again, imagine if you were living on the coast, you see the coast now as a place of vulnerability because of the tsunami. Sendai is much further inland. Of course, it's got more infrastructure, better schools for your kids. Tokyo University is there, all kinds of good stuff. So what we're seeing in Japan is Yes, the country as a whole is shrinking. Yes, rural areas especially are shrinking, but they're going to cities and the cities are actually growing. 
So we have these two contradictory trends. Rural areas are getting smaller. So that, for example, if you're elderly there, yes, you probably have, let's say, fewer neighbors, but you know them better. But in contrast, the cities like Tokyo, Osaka, Sendai, those cities are actually growing. And now you're getting more and more people coming in who've never met before. And maybe that population that we mentioned before, where they're not going to meet their neighbor because they're too busy working with their bottom person, the totem pole, they're putting in 70 hour work weeks, they're only go home to sleep. It's a weird thing. And honestly, we don't have enough research on this question, which is how does demographic decline affect overall resilience uh, during these big shifts? I'm curious. I know you said that you're still in the midst of researching this, but between a rural area that's been largely drained of its youthful population and a highly concentrated urban area where people may be living one on top of the other but not know each other. Do these pose equal problems for social ties or is one easier to ameliorate than the other? So actually, I've done research in communities, rural communities that are shrinking, that are primarily elderly, including one in Masakicho, for example, up in Tohokudai. And Masakicho has one of our projects called Ibasho, which has deliberately asked people over 65 if they want to have a social infrastructure space as the center for daily activities. So they do yoga there, they do libraries for kids, they have skill classes, they have cooking there, they make food for people. They send out the elderly to go change light bulbs in homes nearby. So that group is incredibly connected. That's a great example of a strong bonding set of ties with very few bridging or linking ties. That elderly community is incredibly cohesive People know everyone else's name. If you don't show up for a meeting, they definitely go knock on your door. They're worried about you, which is great. But there aren't that many younger people, different speaking people, outside people that are there. And that Ibasho project isn't necessarily politically connected either. Let's go look at Tenojiku in Osaka or Hiro in Tokyo. Those communities, in contrast, are much more heterogeneous. You may have foreigners there. You may have people from different ethnic backgrounds, like Burakamin, for example, or Zanichi Koreans, people who have been in there for 10 generations. Uh, you might have more people going to international schools. You might have businesses catering to a broader population. You have a halal population, for example. In an urban setting, you have more heterogeneity. That is good in the sense you have this broader mix of ties, but also more challenging to build those stronger cohesion ties. So if you said to me, where would you rather live? It's a tough call. Of course, we all want to have people who know our names and would recognize that we're not there. But if you only have that bubble in America, it might be you're on Facebook or Twitter with your friends, all of whom are blue or red like you. So you don't really hear opinions that say from across the aisle. You don't hear different types of thinking. I would say both are equally dangerous. A community that's completely homogenous with no one on the outside, no bridging ties, has a lot of groupthink and may not necessarily think through the shocks or ways to mitigate stuff in the future in creative ways. In contrast, a heterogeneous group may not necessarily be cohesive yet, but on the other hand, there is a lot of external wisdom, broader ties, and more diversity there. So it's a good question. Now, which of those two communities would we rather live in? I think Japan certainly and other communities are definitely creating this strange, that's called a dualistic society, when you do have very strong bonding ties in depopulating rural communities with very heterogeneous ties in cities. We've been talking about the role of social ties from, to me, what seems to be largely a focus on maybe physical or geographic proximity to the people that you're building these ties with, to your neighbors and your coworkers. So I'm interested in what role, if any, do you see social media playing in the establishment or maintenance of social ties? And do these kinds of social ties help provide the same levels of social resilience? 
One of my students who's now a professor, Courtney Page Tan, did her thesis on this question of what's the correlation between, let's say, being really involved IRL in real life and also being really involved in an online community. And she used a great platform called Nextdoor, which is kind of like Facebook for a geographically contiguous area, meaning that you have to prove you live in neighborhood X to be involved in discussions about neighborhood X. So for example, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm right in, in Boston here. I couldn't join a community there in Baltimore, Washington, DC. My hypothesis was if you're super duper involved in real life, probably you're not going to be the most online person, right? You're not going to be the person sending out links to friends or joining online slacktivism and press this button and help them raise funds. And also conversely, if you're really involved in an online community, maybe you're ignoring your local community. And I was wrong. Actually, that's very wrong. She proved very well that people who are really active in real life in the neighborhood, handing out flyers, delivering foodstuffs, making masks, giving blood, are also really involved in virtual communities, making those same kind of connections. And actually she showed that in communities with higher levels of online engagement, we also could predict high levels of rebuilding after a shock. She used some of the hurricanes happening in Houston back in the late 20, 20, 20 teens to show that those communities where we had online engagement also got their building permits faster because again, they exchanged information, they worked together, they helped each other collect debris. The challenge though, of course, is an online community when the power goes out here and your batteries and your phone are about to die, or there's a flood in your community and you need someone to get you a canoe or a kayak or a inflatable boat. If I've got friends in Japan, they can feel sympathy for me and they can send money, but they can't send a boat to me in the hour that I have left before the waters overtake my house. Similarly, if someone's having a heart attack nearby, it's great to have an online group of CPR knowledgeable friends, but if, unless I've got someone nearby who can do chest compressions, it's not gonna help the victim with the heart attack. So I still remain a little skeptical, especially since so many of us spend a lot of our time online and so many of our connections nowadays, of course, are deeply embedded in the ability of people to connect online. So much of our stuff, our schooling is online, for example. Uh, taxes, businesses are online, forms are online. Since we spend so much time online, I do wonder, are we not meeting as many neighbors though? Are we not making those broader connections locally? Are we spending less time at the park because we have our phone? And there have been a few funny crossovers. I remember when Pokemon Go came out, they've actually shown using mobility data, that was the highest number of people meeting outside in many communities in like the last 10 years from the number of teenage kids outside with their phone meeting to train their Pokemon. So that's a funny moment when the digital world and the real world overlapped very strongly. That's pretty rare though. If you could design a platform or program or an app where people would use that to connect and then meet in real life, that would, I think, be the ideal moment, right? Because then you're meeting people who live nearby, same interests, whether it's wine tasting or dog walking. But then when that bad thing happens, that you know that neighbor two doors down who can help you out. Have you heard that Seoul has actually proposed that they're going to input this new metaverse idea in terms of their municipal whatnot? So like if you want to meet with someone at City Hall to discuss something having to do with your district or whatnot, they're now going to be hosting that in this augmented reality metaverse area. Have you heard this? I have not. That's fantastic. Again, simple reality is people who are younger tend not to be involved in these sort of civic engagement stuff, often because they're starting school, they have jobs for families. The older you get, typically you think about the garbage pickup, school taxes, those kind of really boring but critical issues. So that's, I think that's a fantastic way to cross them over. So I guess what you're telling us is not that social media is inherently bad. It's just when your only social ties are in the digital realm and you don't have someone who can be that physical first responder, that it becomes a problem. Exactly. Yeah. If you exclude the creation of those in real life communities by the work that people are doing in your online communities, then we're in trouble. 
hopefully people are finding a good balance like we're discussing now where they can still be that Pokemon hero, but also get out to City Hall or take a walk in the park. The spillover effects of IRL communities mean, for example, that if I have friends in real life, we're going to meet at businesses nearby. We're going to go out and do stuff. So that's also a spillover to businesses. Businesses often worry, like if we make it harder for cars to come nearby or make it pedestrian traffic, will I lose businesses? Well, of course, we want people to be seeing their neighborhoods as active, lively, and a place where you want to stay. So the more that we can do to build these ties, the more spillover we have people go to get coffee. Oh, I, I can go now get a movie together. Maybe I'll pick up my dry cleaning nearby. So the spillover effects here are no more than just getting us ready for disasters. They're building communities where you want to live, work, and play. So you've given us a lot of really fantastic ideas on how to foster these horizontal, the bonding and bridging ties. But I'm curious, what about vertical ties? Can they be cultivated in the same way? Or is it a matter of you either have them to leverage or you don't? In the studies that we've done so far, oftentimes it was pretty random if a community had access to that powerful person pulling levers of power, whether it's in Washington, D.C. or in Tokyo. You can imagine, for example, if you were living in Nevada and Harry Reid were your representative, as opposed to, let's say, a very small person from Massachusetts no one's ever heard of, that was where you're born, beyond your control. I have seen attempts to build vertical ties deliberately. For example, when I was in India, a number of the governments actually flew in communities to meet with people they'd never actually seen who are their representatives in the legislature and in local government, which is a great way to do it. So again, rather than making local people wait for your visit, you bring them to you to show you what the kind of stuff that you do. The flip side to that is, what if the powerful people embed themselves back in the community? Of course, we know most politicians have a home office, as we call them. What we've actually seen is a little bit different. These are agencies who go into the communities that they serve. And rather than waiting for a phone call, let's say, and someone asking, can you please give us X, Y, and Z? They've actually done the opposite. They've gone and sat in those local meetings, whether it's a school board meeting or a 4-H club, whether it's the, the Moose or, uh, or Kiwanis, and they've just been there so long that they've been able to build trust and connection. This was what I actually saw in New Zealand, there in Wellington. Their whole plan inverts the typical you know, top-down communication strategy. They are the ones who go out and figure out what's going on in local communities. So as we get near the end of our conversation, I thought it could be interesting if we zoom out a little bit. I'm interested in your perspective on whether different political or economic structures, for example, democratic countries versus authoritarian countries, communist versus capitalist societies, if the differences between those kinds of societies would better lend themselves to the development of certain ties or alternatively, have you noticed any differentiation across cultures vis-a-vis -vis social ties or trends that you've observed are more or less universal? Yeah, actually, this is a really fascinating question. I had a student uh, from Venezuela who described the incredible crisis that country has been going through over the past few years, literally as you know, prices have skyrocketed. People have fled the country from Venezuela to places nearby, whether it's for example, Trinidad, Tobago, Panama, other places. And he described how as a result of not being able to trust the government, communities began to trust each other even more. In a sense, because the police often, at least as he described them, weren't that able to respond to calls, local communities organized their own, let's call them community watch patrols. I heard the same thing, by the way, happening in Haiti after the earthquake there, when in a number of cases, the people who were helping keep people safe were not uniformed first responders, but rather community members. So in both those cases, state failure really pushed civil society to do more. 
precisely because they could not rely on them. So does that mean, for example, in a country like Germany or Japan or America, people are less active? Not necessarily, right? Because there, there's more political representation. It's more of a political formal channel. If you think about the Sunrise Movement right now or Extinction Rebellion, those kind of groups that are really active in a number of areas or, or back in the area when age was first coming out, right? ACT UP and other groups. So again, there are different channels. I'm not sure we know enough right now to say societies X, Y, and Z uh, produce difference. I will tell you that there's a study of what happened in more authoritarian countries. And what they found was basically negative interactions with the government reduced overall trust. So for example, if your community mm. were hit by a disaster and the government said to you, well, sorry, we only support people from our political party or sorry, your group is no longer in favor with us. And this actually, by the way, also happened a little bit in Japan. People overall lost confidence in the government. And again, that is to say, they did not see those vertical ties as producing what they wanted and then focus more on the horizontal ties. So I think, yes, it's a great question. I think the broadest answer I could give, which is accurate, would be definitely negative interactions with the government push people away from trying to get the vertical ties toward more supporting the bottom-up horizontal ones. And especially in environments when we have this tremendous amount of shock and challenge uh, and inability to really get a good response from the government, we're going to see a stronger response from civil society. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Aldrich. Before we end our conversation, we did want to ask one last question on a different line of thinking. And that is many of our listeners are students and our young professionals And it's a really great opportunity when we have experts on our podcast to be able to pick their brain on what advice would you give to students and people in the field that are just starting out that are interested in pursuing a career in East Asian studies? Oh, that's a great question. First of all, please do. That's how I'll start with that. We we definitely need more experts. And as probably many of you all know, listening, learning Korean, Chinese, Japanese, any in any language really beyond the advanced languages takes a lot of time and background. So don't be discouraged. I think that's an important part of this. So that's the first thing. So don't get discouraged keeping the program. Second thing is find a mentor. And we're incredibly lucky. We have tremendously strong mentors at places like Johns Hopkins, for example, uh, places like George Washington, other, other schools there in Washington, D.C. area. So find a mentor who can encourage you and guide you. And then I think the other thing to do is fail forward. Don't be afraid of taking risks. I think COVID has pushed a lot of us sort of back into our shelves, especially since travel has been shut down. And there are a lot of things we can do, right, even under COVID, in terms of apps that help us learn Japanese or Japanese conversation tables or online events or watching the news or being involved in local events. So even as we feel this sort of conservatism and this maybe a little bit of anxiety about getting more involved in stuff, this pandemic life we have now probably will be the future for some time. So we really have to push through and figure out how do we use our ties, how do we use our our resources uh, to develop ourselves, whether it's as a young scholar, for example, or someone who wants to spend time in Asia, fight the presence of those challenges. Thank you so much. It's truly been a pleasure. For anyone listening to hear more from Dr. Aldrich, you can find him on Twitter at Daniel P. Aldrich. Dr. Aldrich, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. 